You're listening to the Owner Build podcast, where each week, Paul Hemming from SheLink interviews experts on how small and medium-sized developers can level up their business through intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming, and my co-host, uh, Liam Curley. How's it going, Liam? You all right, mate? I'm very well now, thanks. I've been upgraded again, am I? Co-host. Yeah, co-host, whatever been, you want. I was host, then downgraded, now co-host. Whatever whatever you want to be, Kills, if, you have, if this hasn't become clear, then you, you can be whatever you want to be in this environment. It's a safe space, so just be yourself. Okay. You asked for it. <laughs> okay, How so are you, Paul? So today, I didn't ask you it, back, sorry. If I'm co-host, I, I should probably ask you. You should, yeah. You should give me a little bit of something. But I'm I'm fine actually, Liam. You know, I'm I'm actually we were just talking off air with today's guest who has just opened our eyes to the world. What was what was, <laughs> what, what, what was the question he asked? When you stand up, where does your lap go? Where yeah, where does your lap go when you stand up? Yeah. Why is it you never see baby pigeons? <laughs> I've got nowhere to go with this. I have no, no idea, but it's, it's mesmerising stuff. It is. Yeah, it's one of those things that you'll keep you up until three o'clock in the morning when you realise that it's just not worth living anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so today our episode is about planning and big disclaimer for our guest and for our listeners. And I'm going to speak for you here, Liam. This is an expert that neither Liam or myself would profess to be experts in it. So we're both looking forward you're gonna, to You're going to have said that about me for every single episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't be that nasty. I wouldn't be that nasty. But our, our, our expert guest today is David Kemp from DRK Planning, a multidisciplinary planning and development consultancy. How are you, David? I'm pretty well, thank you. Thanks very much, Paul. Good to see you, Liam. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, really good to have you here, David. You're... Um, you were introduced to us by our a very good friend of the show, uh, Piragash of Totem Finance. So, so tell us, David, tell us a bit about how you know Piragash, your background, and, and when you came to start your business, DRK Planning. Oh, Piragash, actually, I met it quite a few years ago. I started off my planning practice about 10 years ago. So it was uh, I was working for other companies and other firms before that. So I actually started off in planning and property about 20 20 plus years ago. And I was a general practice chartered surveyor. So I did a bit of evaluation in an agency, qualified into planning, spent uh, quite a few years doing that, and then uh, set up my own practice about 10 years after that. And when, when I set up the practice, not long after that, I became friends with a guy who was starting off on this development journey. And we were looking at doing developments together. So we would look to try to find the sites and put the funding together, etc. And it was through that connection and looking at speaking to funders, brokers, that sort of thing. That's how I met Piragash. Um, but um, my own focus has been slightly different since then. It's not been so much in being developer. It's been now a lot more focused towards the consultancy side of it, which we're extremely busy in. And um, from that point of view, my connection with Piragash has been through the continuing networks that, that we're both members of together. Yeah. 
And and are you in are you in northwest London? Did I see your your office? Was yeah, in West, West Hampstead. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we're almost neighbours, David. We're almost yeah, really? neighbours. That that that's great. That makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Um, <laughs> Where are okay, you? Okay, cool. So near Hampstead Heath. Um, so yeah, no, right. not, okay. not too yeah. far away at all. Um, yeah. You live in either side of Ricky Gervais, are you two? Or? Yeah, we're, he's he's our sandwich. <laughs> yeah, Damien, is it Damien Lewis? Damien Lewis, I see sometimes walking. Walk yeah, around, there's, yeah, there's quite a few quite a few people faces. I saw Michael McIntyre. Oh really? Uh, t- wait, taking his dog for a walk the other day as well. Yeah, he I think lives near here. Well, as well, they'll be talking about you, David. Soon. Oh, did you see that? I just saw David Kemp. Uh, <laughs> out, out of the park. He's, he's from the from the Own the Bill podcast. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool, cool. So, um, at the start of all of these uh, conversations, when we're meeting new professionals, I always just for a, a different perspective on things. I'm a QS, so my focus and my motivation, if you like, uh, on, at the outset of all projects, was always finance and money oriented. For, for you as a planning professional, what motivates you? What are you trying to get out of a project at the very start? What are you looking to achieve? Whatever the good, a good result is for the client, really. And different clients will look for different things. Some of them, well, obviously, they're looking to make as much money and profit out of the scheme as they possibly can. Others are also driven by other values, such as their reputation. Now, I think, oh, oh, actually, that's not fair. All the All developers are are driven by their reputation to a certain degree. But others want to get to their financial destination in a way where they're also making it clear what they want to contribute to the local community. Others care less so much about that. It's about making the money and moving on to the next thing. But, I mean, as, as somebody who runs their own practice, we also care about reputation as well. So, you know, we do want to to go about things in the right way. And it's becoming much more something that we have to be alive to as consultants because it's a political process and it's becoming much more difficult to have that connection with planning officers. And therefore we have to work harder through an application, particularly some of the bigger applications that we're on to, uh, to create that relationship with people locally as well. So it's a combination of obviously trying to get good results for your clients and re- repeat business obviously but balancing that against creating and make creating developments that suit the communities and actually are good value adds for the community effectively yeah yeah absolutely yeah something that ideally we can all look back on with a degree of pride and obviously that's not necessarily going to be a driving factor with somebody who's just wants to do pds converting the back of a shop to small flats and and rent them out their value hierarchy is different. They're not necessarily concentrating on uh, the impact on the local community because it's a different kind of project. David, just I was going to say, just touching on what you said there, does the relationship that you have with the local planning office, is that heavily influenced? Maybe influence isn't the right word, but does your selection of clients and the decisions that they make have an impact on the relationship that you have with the planning office or is it more about the um, whatever's put forward by you reflects on the client and not and not you? It's a bit of both. I mean, if I was going into it not concerned about how the client would come across, then it's not going to do the project any good and then it's not going to do us any good because for us, our, you know, we put bread on the table uh, not by sitting there and just churning out stuff and 
in earning fees. We put bread on the table because we have a good reputation. People come to our practice because of our expertise, because of our reputation. And that reputation is because we can, in the main, get projects through planning. And from that point of view, the result does matter. But to get that result, you've got to come across in a way that makes sense to the local community, makes sense to the planners, ties in with their policies, etc. And in much the same way that delivery can sometimes be a factor when you're dealing with agents. So, for instance, if you're going to buy a property, sometimes the price that you're offering is important, but also sometimes they might actually affect a lower price. Uh, they might accept a lower price on a deal because they were let down the last two or three deals and people didn't complete. So the, you know, the overriding factor in that case is not necessarily price, it's about delivery. And surprisingly enough, in a lot of projects, some projects, it's about the delivery, it's about the end product as well. And that it's not going to be somebody just trying to get planning and then hand it on to somebody else. And you're going to be sat there with um, an empty building or a white elephant. And the local community is probably just going to be uh, left in the lurch a little bit. So, you know, there are, there are those factors in, in place. So, you know, absolutely, it's a, it's a great question. And in the sense that we're both concerned about it, I'm concerned about it, not just for my own sake, but vicariously for the client. That, 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 make, that makes sense. And, and so the, one of the objectives that we have with, or what we're trying to achieve, I guess, with these podcasts is, number one, to meet very interesting people like yourself, but also to kind of have tangible takeaways for the listeners to go and think about or action in their professional lives. So what, one question I would have as a planning consultant, obviously you're engaged by multiple different clients at likely different stages in different ways and under different circumstances. What is what is the ideal makeup of an engagement that you get from a client? When would you want to be engaged and how, how would they engage you in perfect circumstances? Well, we do get sometimes engaged as a troubleshooter and dropped in the middle of it, and that often happens as well. You know, perhaps an application, they tried to put an application through and it didn't work out, went a bit pear-shaped. And uh, we then got to look at whether or not the, they can do anything about that. And in some cases, I will say, yes, uh, that's a bit of a, a bad decision. I think you can appeal or it might, you might have to look at a parallel strategy and either put in a revised application and hedge your bets, whilst at the same time, there's a chance you might get an appeal through against the decision that's just been taken. But in, in most cases, I like to try and work with the clients right from the start because I have the m- more influence over the genesis the evolution of the scheme then rather than right in the middle or towards the end of it. You know, sometimes the hardest instructions, and I take on very few of them for that for this very reason, are the ones where you're coming right in at the end and they want you to be the face in front of the planning committee who basically presents a scheme to the planning committee. It is almost as if, hey, we've done all the work. And here's the scheme, and we want you to go be, and sell it. Yeah, you, know, you go and sell it. I've I've actually got to really believe in the scheme that's being put in front of me to be able to sell it to the planning committee because that's my re- that's my face, my name, and my reputation on the line in front of a council that I might want to do future business with with this client or with other clients. So you know, we've got to be very careful about it. And we have a a strategic three step model in terms of applications which we take clients through to manage those costs and risks but it helps them to 
you know, do the initial research, the initial due diligence on a, a project, sometimes pre-contract, and then it takes them through the PD, pre-app routes, and then onto full application. Yeah. Okay. That's so. That's really interesting. Then. So, you what you're actually saying is it, it makes sense. The, so, the sooner the better. When is early? When when is your prime time? Is it the land has been acquired, or when are you really looking? Well, the problem is, I think it's got to start before the land's acquired because that's when you've got to, when the, the client has got to think about how much they're going to pay for it. There may be all sorts of reasons why they can't get the number of units that they need. They may, there's a price that they, they expect to pay by the vendor. The vendor's got a price in mind, and that price might be, it might be equivalent to, say, eight or nine units. Well, there might be a planning reason why it's, you can't get eight or nine units. You can only get six or whatever. You can yeah. only get six. So you know, might, uh, it might be that they've got an architect to do a feasibility study on it, and the, and the architect can think about space, but they can't think about all the other factors around it, such as sunlight or daylight or other stuff that might be relevant to the planning. Even then, they might be able to get eight or nine in there, but they don't necessarily haven't even thought about the fact that there might be other money that has to be paid out, such as towards... Uh, section 106 or something like that. Okay, and, and, and so it's always the struggle I, I see for developers is is how to engage. Paul, I'm going to ask, Go on. Paul, hang on, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask a stupid question. <laughs> What's section 106? Section 106 is basically, it's a, it's a side agreement you have with the council and it covers various improvements that you offer through the scheme. They are usually improvements to do with environmental improvements, affordable housing contributions, that sort of thing, which is a way of guaranteeing that those improvements will be delivered with a scheme when the scheme takes place. Um, and without it, it would be unacceptable in planning terms, but this is a way of making it acceptable in planning terms. And it's a legally binding agreement. It's basically, it's a contract between you and the council. And the contract is managed, it's set within a framework, a legal framework that basically gives it teeth. So if you don't do what you say that you were going to do, the council can take you to court and force you, force you to do it, to pay that money, to make those units available to afford, for affordable housing, whatever it may be, whatever the promise may be in that document. So we've got to get you in, we've got to get you involved soon. We've got to get you to own the plans effectively because you will then be really best place to sell it to whoever the... Uh, council is and get it over the line effectively yeah it, it paul it might also affect the way in which they do the deal you see because the vendor might be wanting say a million pounds for the site but the site isn't worth a million pounds in its existing use um and it may be that therefore what you're paying is essentially it's a hope value well first of all you can't raise money off a hope value because the bank will lend roughly maybe 60 percent loan to value on either an existing use or an alternative use if you can get a permission for an alternative use in the meantime. Um, so it'll affect the funding as well. The other thing is that if you're looking at developments where you need to provide affordable housing, then the difficulty is that if you pay too much for the site, then the way the council works out the affordable housing contribution is some of that contribution is going to fall on you, which is going to eat into your profit. Uh, you know, you can get seriously caught out in that case, in which case what you want to do, if you can, is work out a deal where the ideally a joint venture where the landowner puts the, the value of the existing the existing value of the land in and then you have a like an overage split between you where you share in the uplifting value from the planning 
Okay, okay, that's really interesting. And we are going to come back to that. I've got another question for you, David, which we'll get to right after this break. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to share a message from our sponsor, C-Link. C-Link is software designed to streamline the process of subcontract procurement. It's a platform that helps SME developers and main contractors stay agile whilst replicating the commercial scale and savvy of large contractors. If you want to save a guaranteed minimum 5% against budget construction costs on your next project, head to www.get.c-link.com slash podcast to find out more. If you're driving or working out right now and didn't catch that URL, don't sweat it. We've included the link in the description box for this episode. Now, let's get back to the show. So, David, my question, which I'm still not quite getting here, is that obviously, okay, so we're going to get you involved pre uh, land acquisition how i'm not going to employ you on a project by project basis then is it is it uh, is it better for me to employ you on a retainer or so how how can i do it because i'm obviously i'm looking at so many different projects what's the best way for you it usually is on a project by project basis unless you are regularly looking and and bringing forward possibly viable opportunities where there is there's going to need to be some planning advice and there might be enough of those that it's worth putting on a retainer so that I look at a certain number on a, a brief due diligence basis, on a monthly basis. But it happens so very – I don't think I've ever, I, I've ever really been on a monthly retainer with any of my clients because uh, there have been so, – there's so many things that has to happen and so many stars that have to align before, you know, you've got a project which, which you're ready now to take to your planning consultant because the numbers have to stack. The deal has to be there. Otherwise, we're all wasting our time. I mean, I mean, there are in- instances where, you know, I'll be looking at things at a very high level. They're about to go to auction on it. They want to buy to buy an auction or something like that. You know, is it worth a punt? And that, you know, we will, we will look at things like that. But then that's a very high level, no charge. It's just, are there any big red flags? But it's not feeding back anything about, what kind of numbers of units you can get on there and stuff like that. That's a more detailed appraisal. So when I'm talking about multiple instructions with a client, it's not multiple properties, it's multiple instructions. As we split, we we carve down one application, one project. So it starts off with the initial advice, and then you go on to PD and pre-app within that project, and then you go on to a full application within that project okay so it's different tiers of engagement basically exactly yes yeah and each time there's more commitment there's more financial commitment from the client so that they're not asked to spend maybe 10 20 thousand pounds in fees in day day one they might spend maybe 600 a thousand pounds to do the initial due diligence when you feel a little bit more comfortable about that then it's worth spending maybe a bit more on further planning consultancy fees further architecture fees there might be one or two other really key consultants right in the core of the power team who are worth engaging at that point, such as highways, consultants. You get the right number of parking spaces, you can get extra units. 
And so easing ourselves and the team and the investors in gently to the risk and cost exposure that takes you up to full planning. Got you. That's really interesting. And, and we've, we've talked quite a bit about that. Now, what one of the things I wanted to talk about or focus on uh, in today's conversation with you was also uh, sustainability and how that's impacting planning at the moment. And what, what, what can be done with like the whole life costing of buildings around uh, sustainability and, and how you build that into your planning applications? Well, sustainability is becoming more and more important in planning. And they're just changing the national planning policy framework to give it a lot more weight, push, really pushing up the agenda. And I think that there's a very big part to play for all developers in genuinely looking at sustainable development if they can. But it does come with its, its cost implications. It's not always possible to do so. It doesn't always make sense in planning terms, for instance, uh, or in financial terms. And therefore, it's always a challenge to try and frame it within a, with a, within a budget that works for the development and, you know, particularly bearing in mind what you've got to pay for the land. But it's, it's, it's something that you have to look at not as a bolt-on to your scheme. You don't design your scheme and then, you know, the way, you know, it's been done for years and then think, oh, we'll just bung a few PV panels on the roof or whatever. You know, <laughs> it's a bit more serious than that. And you've kind of now got to try and think about how you can design it into the building so it makes sense in terms of passive cooling and heating and solar gain to the project, to the development as well, and good open spaces that work and are a joy to live in, really. Is it being pushed or is it still like very much nice to have but too expensive? Or is it now that London boroughs and local councils are saying... Where's, where's the sustainable element of this development? Or is it, just, do you see what I mean? No, is it, is, it, is, it is really being pushed. And a lot of councils are now saying that they need to see a sustainability, sustainability and energy statement, even for smaller applications. It used to be for larger applications only, but now it's, it's, it's minor developments that they're asking for that as well. So anything below 10 units. What are they, with regards to sustainability at planning stage, because obviously it's such a broad term, what what does that actually look like at planning stage? Is it simply referring to elements in the design that sound good from a sustainability perspective, or are there actually concrete, I don't know, BRIAM or uh, concrete deliverables that you need to demonstrate at planning at the stage where you're getting involved? Yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough one to answer because it's a very specialist area in terms of what goes into it and how they measure it. Uh, they used to be BRIAM. I mean, BRIAM's more for commercial buildings. Then there was the code for sustainable homes and then they did away with that as well. So it's, I think it's a bit on a point system and you give a certain score for the estimated carbon output and you can change that carbon output depending upon what kind of materials that you're using, how much energy is being used up in the building or it's heating, it's lighting systems, etc. which is why if you have say grey water recycling, um, you have seed and roofs, you have air source heat pumps or ground source heat pumps, then you might be able to conserve energy. You might also have a system such as with, with PV panels where you accumulate energy and hold energy and then you can send any surplus energy back into the grid and therefore you can, you know, you can gain extra credit for doing that as well, those sorts of things. Are you doing that, David? I'm not doing early that. 
Well, no, but are, are you are you building it into the planning application, or is it just a a note almost like this is something we're going to do in the future? And no, explore? you're building you're building it into the application. It has to be thought of as part of the scheme that's submitted. You may not be bringing it in day one. It'll day one high level stuff. It will be roughly what can we get on the site, rough scale, rough mass, and then you work in the building techniques and how you're going to build out the the structure to achieve that scale and that mass and height after that. So you're not going to be bringing them in as a core team member, the sustainability consultants right at the start, but they are going to be important as part of the scheme that you're preparing ready for full submission. And even on, would you advocate for having a sustainability consultant of some sort on a project? A lot of our clients are working on projects of 10 or so flats, 20 or so flats on, on projects of that size and scale where margins are not tight, but m- m- money counts. Is it, does, is it really important on those kinds of projects as well to employ that sustainability consultant at early stages? Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that you're going to need a sustainability and energy statement for every project, and it depends upon where they are in the country because every, co- every local authority has different requirements. But even if there is no sustainability and energy requirement, separate requirement for a a bespoke report of that nature, you can't take away from the fact that where you're doing anything that requires planning to state if you are also able to demonstrate a sustainability and energy benefit to the scheme, that's clearly something that they've got to weigh, council have got to weigh and balance in the favour of the project in favour of granting permission. They might have, there might be other sort of adverse consequences of the development. But if it's, let's say, it's, it's a low carbon exemplar, then you could weigh that up against the project. If you're doing development out in the green belt, it might be something where the green belt impact weighs in the balance. But you can say, well, actually, it's a low carbon exemplar project, and therefore it's going to be extremely environmentally friendly, have very low impact upon the, the natural environment. And so, in that respect, it'll be a choice in some case cases as to whether or not they're going to take they, they're going to get that input then at that you know with those sorts of projects. And and obviously you said it's becoming more and more of a a theme. It's getting more and more prevalent. Sustainability needs to be a big part of planning applications. So is that something that you're fundamentally advising that we have to have, I don't know, air sources, but we have to have grey water harvesting or blue roofs, green roofs. Is, is there something specific which is right now helps to just push things through to reduce that carbon score? Yeah, it's mostly going to be things like green roofs and uh, PV panels or other stuff, energy saving stuff around the choice of white goods, choice of lighting um, and simple, simple stuff around what kind of materials that you use, what kind of bricks do you use as well. Uh, Because once you start getting into things like air source heat pumps, you're building extra structures, ground source heat pumps sometimes have to go about 20 feet down into the ground and you're you're adding um, risks there, particularly if you're going to, you're in an area which is near trees or it's prone to surface water flooding as well. So there will be various things which might limit um, whether or not you can go for one thing or another. For instance, an air source heat pump would require a separate cupboard, a separate structure. Well, in some cases, that might be too visually intrusive, such as, such as to a conservation area, or it might be inappropriate to, you know, to put next to a listed building or something like that. So 
I think you, the easy wins are one of the ones like the green roofs, the PV panels, etc. And the easy, easy wins are obviously what you do with water and light conservation within the building and the use of the materials. It sounds, and um, excuse the ignorance here, it does sound a bit like more of the same, almost uh, like green, green roofs, yeah. grey water harvesting. It's, it's not uh, revolutionary stuff. It's stuff that's been around for the last uh, decade. So it, it, no, it's, it, not, it's, no. it's, it's not quite passive housing and that sort of level because there's still a cost involved with a lot of that. And I mean, we're not close enough to the costing issues, but it, it's difficult to make it work on much larger schemes, you know, above 20, 30, 40 units as well. You see most of those passive house projects where it's, it's, um, it's a single house that might be two houses on the site, something like that. It's an interesting uh, conversation because you'd also imagine that if you can reduce the whole life cost, which you can do with a lot of these uh, sustainable uh, products and initiatives, you can reduce the whole life costs of the building and the running cost of the building effectively by going sending energy back to the grid by harvesting rainwater, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You can bring down the overall running cost, which becomes more attractive to sellers, to buyers, sorry, etc. So, is that something that you then factor in? Yes, we're going to spend more, but for every pound that we spend, we're going to get back. One pound ten, for instance. I'm a stupid example. Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's that's a bit beyond the scope of where I would advise. But certainly, where we tend to get involved, and I get involved in in, in different guises in this respect, is how sustainability might affect where you're looking for opportunities. For instance, so it makes sense if you're looking for opportunities, best to look towards brownfield land in urban centres, urban fringes, things like that, to target sites where for instance you've got lock-up garages a lot of those lock-up garages not only have social but they also have environmental problems with them we've got asbestos roofs there they're redundant space they're not optimizing the use of brownfield land uh, and also they you know you can't really park a car in most of these not a normal sized car you know, perhaps a smart car whatever therefore and a lot of local authorities now need to move towards car-free housing so you know it makes sense to try and you know, look to the, those opportunities and that in itself is sustainable. I mean, that's a massive win and it probably makes a lot more difference rather than playing with air bricks and, you know, green roofs and stuff like that. Not to diminish that side of things, but you can make a bigger impact if you're building on brownfield, available brownfield land and optimising those opportunities. Okay, that's, that's, that is actually really interesting then, isn't it? It's, it's a case, it's taking it right back to the beginning and the, the land that you're focused on is about so if, if you want to build sustainably and you want to be to make sustainable applications as well i guess then brownfield is a really good place to start and that will allow you to reduce the carbon it's where number. the government wants you to go it's where local yeah. authorities want you to go and if you're providing things which meet their with their objectives you'll find it easier to get planning through and establish a presumption in favor on the land which will also then make it easier to raise finance quicker as well Okay, excellent. And, and, and have the, the, the changes to the planning uh, that came in last, last year, the, I think it's planning for the future policy, has that further pushed the sustainable uh, side of things? Well, it's coming through in dribs and drabs. I mean, and what we have seen is um, the government now start, starting to touch towards a national design code, as I say, pushing sustainability higher up the national policy agenda with a, a revised national planning policy framework. Um, we have not quite seen the changes towards zonal planning, 
that were first advertised, that will take years because we've got loads of local authorities in the middle of bringing forward revised plans of their own under the existing system. And, you know, and to ask them now at a time that they don't have enough money or resources to take on extra responsibilities, that's a whole other conversation that needs to have it needs to be between local government and central government. And and as an expert, in your opinion, is it the real deal? Is it is it a big revolution in in planning that policy? Is is it really going to take us forward as a as an <sighs> industry? I don't know. I, I, I there's a lot of people. <laughs> Come on. There's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of um planning consultants and planning lawyers who think it's it's it, it, it helps with a bit more clarity around what you can get permission for. Uh, or where you're going to get a presumption in favour of permission. But beyond that, it just feels a lot about like window dressing. And you'll, I, th- I still think you're going to have different local authorities moving at different speeds because some have got the money for the changes and some haven't. Yeah. Oh, it's a frustrating topic as a uh, construction guy waiting for so many projects to go through planning. And you, you just think um, there's got to be a better way to do it. So that's what I was interested to ask. Is it going to be the energy that we all we all need to uh i think there, need, I think there like needs it. to be some serious money pumped into planning services at the local level because the difficulties that we all have um and we're trying to always find ways around it is how do you get that engagement with the local planning authority officer and get them calling you back and you know accepting revised plans in the middle of applications but sometimes they're told no only decide it on the basis of the plans that you've been given in the first place and all sorts of problems around that and the lack of engagement with officers and it's a it's you know it's a pain in the ass which is why i now advocate something that's been counterintuitive to me for years and that's to start talking to the neighbors and local councillors at a much earlier stage okay okay well look it's um been a really uh, interesting conversation it's definitely helped me to improve my knowledge of planning and um ha- how best to work work with you guys so thanks very much david for welcome, coming in welcome. how do you feel about that liam yeah i think i uh... Uh, I think I'm an expert now on that. Stick stick to marketing, Liam. I think that's, I think, that's, I, it, I, yeah, I think that's, I think that's your spot, mate. Yeah, okay. Um, awesome. Well, look, thanks, thanks so much, David, for coming in. And um, perhaps sometimes in the future we'll drill down further in, in a bit more detail into into the topic. And um, yeah, thanks so much for coming in. Great. Thank you for having me. Good to see you guys. Cheers. Thanks, David. Awesome. Thank you very much. See you next week, Kels. Take it easy. See you, Dave. Bye. Cheers, then. Bye-bye.